Hi, everybody. This is the Funeral Science Podcast, a podcast about funeral science. I'm Ben, and I will be your funeral scientist for today. Okay, funeral scientists, I have two October case reports for you to consider this year. You may recall that last year we conducted imaginary case reports for four different movie deaths. If you haven't listened to those, you can add a little bit more Halloween fun for yourself. First in our prep room is a longtime fan favorite. He was first brought to life in 1818 by Mary Shelley in a writing contest that also gave us some of the literary origins of vampires. I refer to, of course, the modern Prometheus himself, Frankenstein's monster. In the book, the monster is reanimated by Victor Frankenstein from collected body parts. Victor rejects his monster who wanders the countryside looking for someone to accept him. He doesn't, but instead he exacts revenge by killing Victor's brother and framing a young woman in the household who is convicted and executed. The monster eventually convinces Victor to create a companion for him, but before he gives her life, Victor destroys her. Obviously, the monster is super mad and vows that he will be with Victor on his wedding night. Before Victor is able to return home to marry a woman named Elizabeth, his boyhood friend, the monster makes one more attempt to frame him for a murder, which Victor is temporarily jailed for. When Victor is released, he does marry Elizabeth and sends her away from his room while he awaits the monster. But instead of murdering Victor, the monster murders Victor's new wife and escapes to the Arctic Circle. Victor knows that he must now track the monster and destroy him. However, Victor falls ill and dies aboard a ship headed for the North Pole. The captain of the ship finds the monster has come aboard and is weeping over Victor's body. He tells the captain now that his creator is dead, he can also move on and heads to the northernmost ice to die. So, say the monster's body is recovered and we are set to embalm him. First, let's set aside the fact for a moment that formaldehyde was not even identified for about 40 years after the monster's death. The accepted embalming fluids contained arsenic, mercury, and various alcohols, so generally embalming then was about disinfection for long-term preservation. As we know, no one would mourn the monster because other than Victor, No one knew he existed. However, there would be value in an anatomical study of a cobbled-together, reanimated human. We'll get to the problem of the monster being, well, a monster in a moment, but the first thing we have to deal with the fact that he's frozen. Since he wandered off to freeze to death, he is likely to be rock-solid and pretty dehydrated. In the funeral science Uh, podcast episode on cryonics and Utsi, we learn that when someone is frozen, the water crystals in the cells expand and rupture the cell. Long-term freezing can also lead to dehydration, as was the case with Utsi. 
we can expect that kind of widespread damage here as well. However, that would not be the only thing we could imagine would be the cause of complications. First of all, recall that Victor Frankenstein put his monster together using old body parts. So meticulously would these have to be connected at a microscopic level that there would be scar tissue causing intra and extravascular resistances. Further, we could imagine there would be a variance in the location and size of arteries as it would have been difficult for him to correctly recreate an average vascular system. Further, we have to think of the decomposition of the tissues used in the monster's creation. Decomposition starts immediately after death, and as we learned in the four-part decomposition series of the Funeral Science Podcast, there are many variables based on time, water content, bacterial activity, and temperature. So let's just say that Victor was able to get fresh enough tissues that these wouldn't be a terrible factor. We would also have to wonder about how well the monster's body was functioning in terms of waste elimination. In a non-reanimated human, one of the main functions is the breakdown of fat globules so digestive enzymes can further break them down, as well as the elimination of nitrogenous waste from your body. This is done by both the kidneys and the liver. It is all dependent on the body's ability to circulate the waste in and out of the vascular system. Now, I'm no expert on reanimated humans, but my money is on the fact that these systems do not function well and that there would be a glut of mismanaged waste in his body. This would lead to an increase in bacterial activity. Fortunately, his frozen demise would likely prevent the growth of bacteria and the breakdown of proteins. Also, Luckily for us, scientists in the 1800s were less about aesthetics and more about preservation, so our efforts to preserve the monster would likely kill us because of the poison we would be using, but would contribute to the future of human knowledge and perhaps more reanimated humans until humanity recognized the ethical implications of this activity. Moving on to more modern times, let's look at our second case, a gremlin. I am talking about the creatures that come from the 1984 Christmas movie of the same name. In the movie, an inventor named Randall buys a small furry creature called a mogwai for his son Billy in an antique shop in Chicago's Chinatown. A bit of foreshadowing occurs here as mogwai translates to devil in Cantonese. Ownership of a mogwai comes with three rules. Do not get him wet, do not expose him to sunlight, and do not feed him after midnight. Gizmo proves himself to be a loving member of his species, but things soon change for the worse when he is accidentally covered with water when Billy's friend spills a cup of water on him. This leads to the spawning of five more mogwai, including a more devious one named Stripe for the tuft of hair on his head. Of course, Stripe tricks Billy into feeding him and the other mogwai after midnight, which then causes them to metamorphosize into the more devious gremlin form. From there, their reign of terror in Billy's hometown of Kingston Falls begins with an attack on Billy and his mother, who manage to kill all of the gremlins except Stripe, who finds his way to the 
YMCA pool, where he spawns dozens more gremlins who party in the local movie theater while watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Billy and his girlfriend Kate are able to set off a gas explosion, manage to kill all of the gremlins except Stripe, who had left the theater to find more candy in a nearby department store. Stripe attempts to spawn more gremlins by jumping into the department store fountain, but a quick-thinking gizmo opens a skylight, allowing light from the newly risen sun to hit him and kill him. Now let's imagine that in the wreckage of the movie theater, a dead gremlin is found and given to us to embalm. There is no fire damage, it had simply died of smoke inhalation. There would be much value in having a well-preserved specimen for study, and scientists are anxious to dissect it once we are finished. However, could we do it? Well, of course! First of all, we are indeed unsure as to where they belong on the tree of life. The mogwai form does appear to be mammalian due to its hair or fur. We also see that the hair or fur remains when they are in the gremlin form. However, they reproduce asexually and undergo a metamorphosis in a cocoon, which is not something higher life forms do. We may surmise that they may not even be from Earth. Still not a problem based on how their behavior is, we can make some assumptions. First, they have an internal nutrient transport system that may be similar to our vascular system. They appear to breathe, as illustrated by Gizmo's singing and the persistent laughter of the gremlins. This means that they have a gas exchange similar to ours. They, whether or not it's oxygen or nitrogen or some other gas that helps them function is unknown. They also seem to eat the same things we do and really enjoy it. That means there is a good chance that their digestive system functions similarly to ours wherein we absorb nutrients that are transported to our tissues through our vascular system. Since they are anthropoidal or human shaped, we can imagine the location of their major blood vessels are distributed similarly to ours. Finally, they are alive, and all life as we know it contains proteins. That's good news for us because formaldehyde will cross-link their proteins and prevent the decomposition of reaction. Even if we are unable to inject them through their vascular system, we would be able to use hypodermic injection for preservation and become heroes of the scientific community. Okay, that's it for this episode. Do you have a question for me? You can email me at funeralsciencepodcast at gmail.com with the subject line, podcast question. Are you or someone you know doing something that promotes education, equality, or otherwise raises awareness about an issue in funeral service? Please send me information about it to funeralsciencepodcast at gmail.com with the subject line, a good thing is happening. As a note here, that has an exclamation mark in it, so be sure to include that in your subject line, and I will be sure to read it. You can also follow me on social media. I'm Mortracker on Instagram. That's M-O-R-T-R-A-Q-R. You can also like the Funeral Science Podcast Facebook page. 
I've also heard on other podcasts that if you rate and review podcasts you like, it helps them. So if you like this podcast, then please do that wherever you are listening from. All right, everybody. I'll talk to you later.